I've thought about this a lot, and I think it has to be. That has to be the case, that you, the, your odds of finding civilization that is intelligent but is not dominated with AI, zero. Welcome, one and all, to the Cool Worlds podcast with me, your host, Professor David Kipping. This week, it is my great pleasure to be joined by Hod Lipson, who is a professor of engineering and data science at Columbia University. There, he is the director of the Creative Machines Lab, and by the way, has also co-founded four companies on the side. He is an expert on a huge range of topics, from artificial intelligence to driverless cars, from 3D printing to the future of advanced robotics. In fact, he's even co-authored two award-winning books on these topics. Those are Fabricated, The New World of 3D Printing, and Driverless Intelligent Cars and the Road Ahead. So his work includes so many topics that I think we're all thinking about in modern society right now, such as the dawn of self-replicating, self-learning, and even self-aware machines. And so for me, this was a very timely conversation. And I think for many of you, you will enjoy hearing about it, particularly at this point in humanity's history, as we explore these challenging questions. What does it mean to be human anymore? What does it even mean to be alive as these intelligent machines start to become an integrated part of our society? So please do enjoy this conversation as we explore the boundaries and the future of artificial intelligence. I first uh, encountered you, we were just talking about before we got started, you gave this wonderful lecture about Eureka many years ago. That's right. And Eureka is a way of a machine discovering physics. It was really mind-blowing at the time. This is already 10 years old though, but just maybe we can start there and talk about more, the more recent innovations with that. Tell us about Eureka for the Uninitiated. What is it doing? How can a machine discover the laws of physics? So the idea is uh, with with uh, Eureka and some of the work that we did before that was to sort of use evolution to mm -hmm. basically breed uh, laws of physics. Okay. So the idea is basically, you know, we do this actually naturally. We come up with all kinds of hypotheses. Here's an idea of a law of physics. Mm -hmm. Let's see if it fits data. Uh, and it's more than just fit, fitting data, you can propose experiments uh, and hopefully the, the data from these new ex experiments will uh, refute uh, some of the laws. In fact, you want to propose experiments that deliberately create disagreement between predictions of competing hypotheses. That's mm. the basis of, uh, of scientific discovery. So that's what the machine does. And how does it make <clears throat> that initial, it just guesses a random Randomly, combination of symbols and things? Exactly, and, yeah. random uh, combination of symbols, uh, completely random laws. Of course, they're all wrong, but some of them are slightly less bad than other ones. Okay. Okay, and then it looks for, you know, what is the next experiment to do? that causes the most disagreement between these laws. Okay, so it's gonna be some point that these laws really disagree about what's gonna happen, and that's the experiment it either does physically if it's connected to a, to a, to a experimental system, or if it's an observational system, it goes to the database and looks for the data point that's closest to mm. that uh, disagreement. And the important thing, it doesn't just fit to all the data, it just looks one point at a time, and that point has to be the point of maximum disagreement. So 
it's actually sort of it doesn't it doesn't see the entire observation at once it just has to ask for something and it gets that and this is really really important mm. uh, that it doesn't just fit to the entire data set it just I see. creates hypotheses so it does that uh, literally billions billions of times a second wow. creates an hypothesis uh, and uh, looks for a data point and then uh, adjusts and creates more hypotheses, throws some out. And uh, if you do that enough times, it's surprising what you get. You get pretty good. Uh, for things we know, uh, we get the answers that we expect. And for things you don't know, you get interesting new things. Now, are they, as, are these results the truth? I mean, who knows? You, know, you, you look at this, you you know, rub mm. your chin and scratch your head. And, and uh, if it makes sense, it makes sense. If it doesn't, then you you ask yourself why. I mean, it's a tool. And it feels a little bit like um, when you play chess against the computer, at least I don't know how the current chess algorithms work, but it was really a brute force <clears throat> approach, right? It would, it would kind of calculate every possible chess move it could possibly do, two, three, even a hundred yeah. moves ahead. And then it would just choose the one that leads to the most successful outcomes if it's trying, there's obviously a little bit different to how the human mind would work right. with this problem. Um, and is there is there a transition with with the new wave of AI that we're seeing to move away from this kind of brute force approach, or is that still underpinning a lot of how these creative, physical yeah, inferences I, are happening? I think what's what's um uh, this idea of uh, the, the really important thing about Eureka at the time was this idea of adversarial learning, which mm. is now very, very common actually within with the modern AI, is that you don't just try to fit a model to data. You have two things competing and challenging each other at the same time. So what we did back then with Eureka was we had models that fit small a small subset of the data, and those subsets of the data moving around to try to defeat the model. This is where you look for that data point that, is, that the models disagree about the most. So these data points are trying to defeat the models, the models are trying mm -hmm. to explain away the data, and they sort of have this antagonistic relationship between them mm -hmm. going back and forth. That's called adversarial learning, it's, and it's at the core of a lot of the modern AI techniques that we see, all these uh, uh, generative uh, art, uh, all of that behind the scenes is typically two sort of two types of two AIs uh, sort of uh, arguing, arguing yeah. um, if, for example, if you look at uh, um, deep fake uh, mm. photos behind the scenes, uh, there's one AI that creates photos and the other AI tries to tell if they're real or fake. Mm. Uh, and in the beginning, the one AI uh, creates garbage. It doesn't even look remotely like a photo, but the other AI cannot tell the difference between garbage and a real photo. So mm. this it's the blind leading the blind. They, they both, they don't know how to do it, but after doing this for millions or billions of cycles, they get very, very good at it. One creates really, really good photos. The other one can can distinguish between a very good fake photo and the real thing. And they they both challenge each other and they get better. And this is the same thing we did back then with Eureka, but sort of for a scientific. Uh, yeah, I guess it, uh, I guess angle. in that case, then it's it's um, you you give it the symbols, the variables. So this could be like distance, time, velocity, things like this. Um, 
and then you must also tell it some some boundaries, some rules. So it's only allowed to use maybe a hundred symbols. Is there is there rules like that, or there's certain operations it can use? Right. Maybe multiply, addition. Yeah. So you ha you you have to give it the alphabet. Okay. Okay. You, yeah. You, okay. Here are the variables you can use. You can use plus, minus, divide, multiply, exponents, and, and if you get you know when we wrote the software initially, we gave the user this a menu what mm. and and there was a a button select all <laughs> and uh, people just said yeah, i get you know try out everything but that turns out that's not a good approach because the more ex more operators you allow the search space increases exponentially okay and so you want to actually this is where you come in as a scientist and say look this is a you know, uh, this is a biology uh, data set, so sine and cosine are not relevant. Mm -hmm. There's no sine and cosine in biology. Take that out, but there's other things. Uh, and uh, so you bring in that kind of knowledge at a higher level and you shrink the search space and then, then it works. But presumably as, I mean, that was 10 years ago when you came on the scene, machines have obviously improved massively over that time. It's presumably getting easier and easier for you to explore larger and larger right. volumes. And I guess one question I have in mind as a physicist thinking of like general relativity, you know, we had to invent new mathematics for GR, like tensors right. didn't really exist and were really developed in hand in hand. And you know, think about even calculus was developed by Newton in part because he needed it to solve celestial mechanics. Um, is there, obviously this is not something that is happening right now in Eureka or its derivatives, but is there a, any hope of getting to that very high level of competing with how a mathematician would think about these yeah, problems? Yeah, well, I would say there not only there is hope, but we've actually done some of that. So, okay. so, so, it it goes even one step further. So, there's one step further, which is to invent new kinds of physics, or you know, to transform the data in some new way that that makes it reasonable uh, to understand. Mm. But I think a deeper question that bothered me for a long time. Uh, when we did Eureka back then was, okay, we measured a couple of variables uh, for the, for Dumble Pendulum, which we published our paper with. We measured angle and angular velocity of the two arms of the pendulum, and then it found the physics. It discovered a lot of physics. But the question back then was, how did we even know to measure angle and angular velocity? I mean, you know, this is it's not an obvious thing. If you on mm. a double pendulum, okay, we study physics, we know that angular velocity is an important thing for describing a dynamical system. But it's like the physicist's intuition was helping out exactly, there, that it doesn't have. Exactly, yeah. but how did we know to measure that thing? And if I show you some other dynamical system, I show you an anthill with moving ants, what do you measure? Mm. I mean, what what's the variable to measure? So, uh, so we did a this is just recently a uh, recent uh, paper where we said, okay, we're just going to show the machine a video, just a video stream of a dynamical system. Mm -hmm. And we're going to ask it, what are the variables? Once you have the variables coming up with a physics, a physical law based yeah. on these variables, I think that's the easy step. So you don't tell it frequency, angle, none of that. It's just, just, just a raw video. video. Just wow. a raw video. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. And ask it, what are the variables? And it, and uh, what are the variables that describe the system? And uh, the and and the way the way we did this, so it works, and but it works in a, the answers is not what you expect, right? <laughs> so 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 for example, we gave it a double panel and we showed a, a raw video. The way we did this is we we said, okay, you take the two frames of the video 
and you have to predict the next two frames of the video, mm-hmm. right? And you have to do that at many scales in, in the next two frames at a millisecond or the next two frames at, uh, at you know, 100 milliseconds or something mm-hmm. like that. So it has to make these predictions and, uh, the, and, and it does it very well. So it can, it can predict the, the next frames of the video. So now they can predict the video, you know, okay, if it can predict the video well, it must understand the physics. It's there inside this huge neural mm. network. It must know something about how a double pendulum works. Now we have to extract that variable, those variables out of that system. So we force that neural network, we throttle it into like a bow tie. So it can go from, it has to predict the, the, the next frames from the previous frames, but it's only allowed to communicate four numbers or five mm. numbers or mm-hmm. six numbers. And for a double pendulum, you can see that if you allow it to communicate 10 numbers, it can do it well. If it can communicate 8,000 numbers, it does it really well. If you allow it to communicate four numbers, it can do it. But if mm. you allow it to communicate three numbers, it can't. Okay, so you can tell that four so is the minimum four number. Is number. And there's some, some clever math that you can do to get to that number uh, right away in a very, very kind of... Uh, uh, it's sort of the dimensionality of the manifold that this network is sitting on. But the bottom line is you kind of squish it and you don't allow it to communicate more than four numbers. And once you, once, once you force it to go mm. to that four numbers, those four numbers are the variables. Right. That's it. Yeah. Now, it's not unique. It does not choose angle and angular velocity. What does it choose? It chooses something else, and this is you know we don't know what it chooses. It's sort of like going to an alien, mm. uh, into uh, you know intelligence and ask them. You know they might have physics that uses different variables. Uh, they don't have to describe uh, the world using the variables okay. we choose, and so it chooses some other variables. It is it can predict the future perfectly in that world, but the variables are not something that we have any intuition about. So. So that's what we're we're hmm. stuck with right now. Can, can you even relate? Is it just all kind of hidden in this black box, it's, or can you relate what it thinks are the variables to the variables that a physicist yes, would assign? Yeah. you can you can see for every frame what are the you know what's the value of these four variables. Yeah, you can plot it as function of time. And uh, you know we tried everything. We say, is this uh, you know is this energy? I mean, yeah. you could describe uh, you could describe a double pendulum with, right. with you know kinetic and potential energy of each arm. I mean, it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be. Maybe it's the square of the the velocities. I mean, we so so you know we can create a neural network that goes from what it want it describes it to the way we want to describe it. But it's not something intuitive. So, uh, so that's the next step, is to try wow. to understand how it thinks about physics. But, but it is able to do it, and so it works for a double pendulum. It works for, and we pointed the camera at uh, a fireplace, mm-hmm. and it said, "This in all this fire flames, twenty-four parameters." Variables describe the whole thing. A fireplace is twenty-four parameters. That's it. <laughs> okay. That's it. That's uh, you know, at least uh, you know, that's you can describe all of it with just twenty-four numbers. So you, the dynamic. Originally, there's obviously like every pixel is a data yeah, point. So there's exactly. like thousands, there's, and you reduce right. those thousands down to there's just hundreds some of combinations of the pixels, essentially, exactly. which exactly. is those four yeah. numbers yeah. that it's playing around yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. So, oh. so, but the fact, the fact that it knew that it was four for a double panel was to me. The amazing yeah. thing, because you know, it—I I don't know. 
what kind of intuition Newton had to have to understand that there is such thing as acceleration. Mm. I mean, we take it for granted. Mm. Acceleration is a parameter you use to describe a dynamical system. I mean, nobody else talked about acceleration before that. I mean, mm. the, to so to or velocity even. I mean, velocity maybe people had an idea, but I think if you look back at great physicists. The biggest contribution, I think, is not the laws; it's the variables. Mm. You know, thinking about entropy, mm. thinking about uh, these new variables that describe a system—that's uh, that's, I think, the energy. I mean, energy is a concept that's fairly uh, new. I think it's about two hundred years old. I mean, yeah. this is to come up with these deep concepts. That I think is much much deeper. Than the actual formula that connects wow. these variables. So there's raised so, so many questions in my head here about this amazing uh, tool that we could, you know, imagine using this on galaxies and exactly. on exoplanetary systems and things, um, which would be really fun. I'm kind of curious. Come back to the pendulum case. That's obviously a fantastic success. With the fire, I mean, you could say it's 24, but we have I don't really know of a physical model where we could say, oh, you need 23 parameters. So it's pretty close. Um, are there other physical systems where it can, it's hitting the right number? Yeah, so we've tried it uh, with a couple of mechanical systems, mm -hmm. both real and simulated, that we know the answer, like a, a double elastic pendulum, you know, right. with, uh, springs hanging out, you know, sort of physics 101 type mm -hmm. uh, things, and it gets the right answer. Wow. Uh, but, you know, we have to try it on other things. But the idea is that this this feeds on massively parallel data streams. So uh, cameras, a, a video stream is a good thing, any you know, radar, I mean, any kind of massively parallel streaming source uh, that you have, you can use it and find out what are the, what are the sort of the, the underlying variables hidden there. Mm. And uh, I think, again, it's, it's a tool. I mean, you look at that, it doesn't give the, the variables any names. Mm. <laughs> it just gives you the value for every frame. And from there, maybe you can, you know, it's it's maybe we can start making sense of it. I kind of want to run it on the entire universe and see it's, if it gives okay. the answer 42. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> exactly. It turns <laughs> out it would that, make sense. Yeah, there's just three <laughs> variables and that's it. Yeah, I mean, does it have, because we're kind of uh, talking around an idea that's um, maybe familiar to us, but just to explore it for the audience, and that's Occam's razor that, you know, the simplest ideas tend to be the correct ones. And so you said here that you kind of squeeze it down from, you know, 8,000 parameters is doing great, but for it's doing almost as good, or maybe even better in some cases, I want to ask you about that. But it, how is it, are you manually telling it no four is better than 8,000? Or does it somehow filter between those and apply its own Occam's razor? There's, there's, it's, it has its own Occam's razor. There is there is a, a clever technique uh, in, in data analysis where you sort of, um, you can find out what is the, the, the dimensionality of the manifold of a data set mm -hmm. automatically. And the way, the, the gist of it is sort of imagine that you have data that's uh, really on a curve. It's, it's in a high dimensional space, but it's really on a one dimensional curve. That, mm -hmm. So if you, you start at the beginning and you expand the sphere around, the, uh, the, around the, the, the origin of the data set, as you expand the sphere, more and more data points are inside the sphere, and the number of data points grows linearly with the radius. Mm -hmm. So you know it's a one dimensional 
I uh, see. Okay. If, okay, if it's a surface, as you grow the sphere, the number of points included in that sphere will grow a square, as a square. Yeah. yeah. So, so that gives you the dimensionality of the data set. It's a, it's a kind of a, a simple, very simple technique. It's well known. Mm. Uh, and so we do that uh, with this data set, and it gives us the number four. It gives a four point two, actually. Yeah. Uh, but uh, which means that this uh, double pendulum maybe had a little bit more than four degrees of freedom. Maybe it was vibrating. Maybe it was the pixelation of the camera. Okay. There's some some more to it. But you can actually get a very clean number. It sounds like when you compare to the next two frames. Um, in the machine learning parlance, you might call that cross-validation almost. You're checking the predictions and choosing between right. models which ones make the best predictions. Right. You know, with with cross-validation, um, we've often heard it argued, and I think it's, you know, maybe you have a, a view on this, that it kind of knows about Occam's razor already. If you take a very, very complicated model, imagine like filling a polynomial of like, 100 order polynomial very very wiggly line through 100 data points it does beautifully but the next point it's you know polynomials are very unstable they just go completely wild for the next data point whereas if you choose a zeroth first order thing it's very stable right. and so it'll make a much it, the simplicity leads to better predictions and so cross validation almost knows it, it's almost built in right. so i wonder you you're only going two frames across but if you go further and further into the future with these double pendulums, do you see any, does, does it still work? Do you see any differences between the complex models and the simple models in those cases? Yes, actually, that's a great question. We, When you use the, the sparse model that has only four variables, it can predict, it can generate future frames that look like it's much more stable in the long term. Mm. So it makes, okay, but, but when you use 8,000 variables, it can predict it can generate very, very crisp images, mm -hmm. or maybe of a fake pendulum, but the images look really, really good. So you get the the if you use many variables, you get you know very good looking predictions that are not stable in the long term. Mm -hmm. you use sm a small uh, subset or a, a tight uh, set of variables, you get very stable long term predictions, but they're not, but they don't. It doesn't can't do the high fidelity rendering. So. We end up actually to do to do it well. We use predictions at all scales. So you mm -hmm. use the uh, you know you use the four variables to know where the pendulum is and to render it well. Then you use the the. It's very powerful. I mean, the fact you can just quantify this number is pretty special. Um, it makes me think of in, in my field, obviously in astronomy. One of the things we want to do is look for intelligence in the universe, life in the universe, and a techno signature would be an information-rich signature, presumably, or, or many of the ones we might imagine, like a, a radio signal beamed our way with their galactic encyclopedia on board. And so it makes me wonder, have you thought, could this be used in some way as a detection algorithm for complexity? This is a system right. which you absolutely can explain with four variables. This requires a huge number of variables, and therefore there's some architect behind the scene here. Right, I th I think so. I think I think uh, that that could be an approach, and you would need to handle this this the randomness issue. So you can you know so if you're trying to model a ran so you need to have built in stochasticity, which this thing, the thing we've built that cannot handle stochastic um, signals. Mm. So and that's really really important. Uh, there's other techniques that that, that are better suited for that.
You mean, you mean signal surges were saying signals with randomness yeah, embedded so within embedded. them? Yeah, embedded. So if, you, so if you try to model a random signal and you don't know any better, you think, oh, this is very rich in information, mm-hmm. whereas actually it's not. Uh, so, so distinguishing between random noise and information is hard. Uh, this is uh, sort of almost the conundrum of information theory. If you try to compress uh, a file of random numbers, very, very difficult because it's very, very rich in information, but that information is useless. Now, I have to ask you, what is your, what is your motivation? <laughs> because you've been on this journey for 10 years. Are you trying to put me out of a job and all the other physicists? Is that what is the in your view, the end goal here, that this would be a tool that we would all be using, or, I mean, it's hard It's hard to imagine we would need as many physicists if this thing was in a fully realized version. So should I be worried about my Well, I, I don't think you should be worried specifically. I think, uh, think there is uh, uh, plenty of things to explain. Uh, we're not going to run out of uh, challenges of things to model, mm-hmm. but it will allow us to model faster, uh, and uh, it would take away the sort of low-hanging. Uh, you just look at it and you say, "Oh, this is." Uh, uh, you, you sort of intuit your way through it. I mm-hmm. mean, it's going to take care of a lot of things that we can't. Uh, uh, the the easy stuff and allow us to handle more complex things. I think, you know, I think we're sort of. Uh, I think we scientists are sort of living in a very brief window of time where we, you know, for, all, for most of human history, there was no math. You couldn't explain anything. Mm. That's it. There mm. was just, it was all observational. Just and magic. And just magic. Bit, yeah. And that's it. And myth. We have math now for, you know, two, I don't know, the plus sign was, I think, uh, invented 400 years ago or something. So it's, mm. a, it's a pretty brief uh, period that we have math and we have mathematical tools and we can explain things. But we are, I think we're reaching a point where, you know, you it's even with the math that we have, uh, it's very difficult to explain things. And, and you know, maybe physics can, can last for a little bit longer, but you look at things like biology, I mean, it's kind of hopeless. Mm. The, the complexity there is so enormous mm. that and, and uh, that it's, it's, it's really hard. So these... These tools that we're developing, I think, can help help us, uh, you know, uh, extend that window a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the long term, if you're if you're thinking, uh, you know, long term for 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 me is uh, ten years in AI. Uh, it, you know, AI is for sure going to be able to understand things that we humans, you know, are just incapable. Yeah, because you could imagine a world where you can almost take the scientists out of the whole process. You could have the observations being taken by some automated robot, some automated, I mean, we've had robotic telescopes, for instance, very common. Um, our survey satellites are all roboticized. So the data comes in robotically. It could be analyzed with tools like you're developing with Eureka and other derivatives. Um, and then the paper, the scientific publication could be written by chat GPT. You're right, that's right. The figures could be generated by you know maybe some combination of like dolly two or something and then and then even eventually the presentations will just be done by (laughs) by, (laughs) By robot machines so but but we'll need you know there is something where i think we'll need is a tool that will be able to explain this to a human Mm -hmm. to say okay this is this is a very complicated model it's very accurate it's very predictive we know it's true because it matches with future experiments and all this. 
and here's the gist of it. It's very complicated, but here's the whatever level you're capable. And, and, and you know, maybe at some point it's going to be too complicated. And mm-hmm. we just, you know, it's like explaining Shakespeare to a dog. I mean, there's there's no metaphor you can... It's, it's no just common not, language, it's, yeah. It's, there's no common language. But yeah. I think for, again, for a while, for, for a few centuries, we can, I think, hang on and... Okay. and, uh, and so we'll be, we'll be moving towards almost interpreters. Yes. Interpreting what it discovers. Exactly. And translating it. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's, that's the role of future, you know, scientific AI is to explain the complex models that AI does understand in in uh, in human language i mean in 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 a way chat gpt is doing a little bit of that so if you think about it chat gpt is uh, a model mm-hmm. that has read the entire internet mm-hmm. and understands the entire internet in one brain the entire internet that is unfathomable it's read everything uh, you can ask it about everything that's out there and it has read it uh, but when you ask it a question, it spits out some explanation that you can understand. And so it translates this entire model, whatever that is, uh, mm. with uh, you know, 175 billion connections into human language that you can understand. So this is, a, I think, a translation. Uh, and I think that's the future of, of AI and science, that intersection. Yeah, it's, it's really been incredible to see these new tools it, it does feel like i mean for the last few years we've been seeing ai do more and more impressive things but the last 12 months has felt particularly accelerated um it feels on the outside of this world like we're on the cusp of something like something is is changing in our society with the with ai potentially becoming truly integrated in the way we we use it in everyday life that's how it feels from the outside, but as someone working in this field, is are we getting too sensationalist about about these new technologies that are coming online? I would say on the contrary. Okay, I think we, people generally underappreciate how fast this is moving forward. Hmm. Uh, you have to remember uh, GPT three, uh, for example, the thing that everybody's talking around uh, about, uh, and that can. I, you know, can 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 solve our final exams, and uh, uh, it, it, in my class, it got above average. I saw in your class, it got slightly below yeah, average. Yeah. Uh, in my class, I copy pasted the questions; it got above average, slightly wow. above average. Yeah. But you have to remember that that tool was released, uh, was was trained uh, in uh, it, it's it's a product of the uh, of the twenties, uh, mm. twenty twenty technology mm. you know gpt4 which is already is you know in existence right now uh is much better and i think people talk about what is chat gpt3 going to do to the world they don't understand that that's all technology hmm. it's already uh, obsolete it's already obsolete i mean uh and uh these things keep getting better so we humans we don't get better with time i mean uh if you look at a previous generation this generation we probably roughly the same level of intelligence we're exposed to more data and so on but but our sort of probably intellectual capacity is similar whereas these systems keep improving literally exponentially and so uh i think people don't appreciate uh what it's going to be like Mm. you know in five years in ten years Uh, and uh and does this does this scare you do you feel a lot of people might feel uneasy 
about living through such a potentially dramatic transformation as someone as you know you are one of the architects of this transformation do you ever at night think maybe i shouldn't be doing this <laughs> well I, you know i i um i'm I, you know watching the videos on this channel and and thinking there's a lot of similarities between seeking extraterrestrial life mm. and this endeavor so you know if somebody told you okay you uh, if you go on the do this thing, you are going to meet an extraterrestrial intelligence. Do you want to do this? And the same thought uh, that that you sure. know would go through your mind is what what I'm thinking, except that I think uh, whereas because it is, it really is another intelligence. It that is, we're meeting a, it, for it the is first another time. intelligence, yeah. and, and and you know, would you do that? I think the answer is of course. Mm. You would you would hit that button and say open the door, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, even though this is scary, the implications are transformative. There's no way back mm. once you do this. Um, but you just how can you refuse this? I mean, the 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 again, I think the benefits far outweigh the risks of having this kind of tool, this kind of intelligence uh, to work with. Uh, but but absolutely, this is something. Uh, this is not a trivial moment. Mm. Uh, it's very exciting. It's very it's terrifying, but I think it's going to happen. And this is what I think people don't understand. This is this is happening very fast, and uh, and uh, the it, it's it's going to be a a pivotal moment in in uh, human history. In human history. People have have written about this as the singularity mm. uh, in the terms of sort of computational like yeah, yeah. Kurzweil's in terms of sort of in, uh, computational singularity of. Uh, you know intelligence and mm. i think that's that's really we we're, we're getting close to it and you know i'm a, i'm a parent of two kids um I, I don't know if you have children or not but i'm curious what do you think we should be you know we always tell our kids like you know study hard at school learn you know learn your mathematics learn your humanities but there is a sense of futility sometimes when you can we saw it with the final exams that we've both tested um what skills would you recommend the young generation of people who are in, in learning right now? What skills should they be focusing on to be best well suited for this new wave of AI that's coming? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, this I'd say this is probably the question I get the most when I talk about AI mm. is, is people wondering, you know, what what should the kids learn and, and, and how should people prepare? And I have, I have three boys and same question occurs to me. Yeah. The older boy, first of all, none of them ask me, all right? So this is all yeah. hypothetical <laughs> advice. Me neither. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the older one is studying AI, which is, uh, you know, at least you can hang in uh, there a bit longer. Uh, but the younger ones, um, I would say, look, there are certain things that AI right now cannot do. And I'm not saying it will not be able to do, but I think it's a little bit uh, down the road. Uh, certainly good enough that you can uh, uh, still, uh, the humans will, 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 will still dominate there. One is uh, um, physical, um, physical work. And this is a bit counter what you normally hear. You, uh, but I think intellectual stuff, machines are going to dominate very quickly. Mm. But when it comes to physical stuff, so uh, the robotics is behind. The robotics the is very yeah. much behind. So uh, an AI can drive your car tomorrow, but when your car breaks down, 
Yeah. It's going to be a human fixing it. I can't imagine a robot crawling around fixing a car. This is so it's it's very it's not a satisfying answer, but mm. you know plumbers are going to have jobs for a long time. I mean here in Manhattan a plumber already makes per hour more <laughs> more than a software developer. Yeah. Uh so so uh you know anybody if if your hands are dirty your job is safe. It's very it's it's the traits. Uh okay, mm. so plumbers, electricians, hairdressers, nurses, surgeons as opposed to radiologists mm. anybody who works with their hands uh mm, interesting okay yeah, yeah. so we should be <laughs> an experimental plumbers. Okay. <laughs> so so you know we might have to rename it give it a little bit more uh you know make it sound a little bit better but but yeah these these uh, so these, these things uh, so i can say robotics is very very far behind for many reasons it's a very complicated thing it's one of these things that you know we've learned We've learned to think about physics for we've been thinking about this for maybe a thousand years, but we've been using our hands for millions of years. So, yeah. so we are just so good at it. We don't understand how how, how good we are at these kinds of things. Now, there are you know, maybe to try and defend human intelligence a little bit. There are many facets to intelligence. Um, there's emotional intelligence, which you might imagine being something more challenging for a machine to duplicate right. as coincidentally. And another one, maybe come back to the Eureka thing a little bit, is is seeing uh, generalization, unification across fields. You could, you know, Maxwell kind of famously did this with electromagnetism. He saw, you know, there was certain equations that governed electric fields that were similar to magnetic fields. And he was able to connect the dots and realize it was a Maxwell's beautiful yeah. equations which unify electromagnetism. And of course, physics is generally on a quest of unification, trying to understand things. It is that something that it seems like obviously Eureka is not at that stage right. yet, but are there aspects, maybe that's a bad example, but are there aspects of intelligence that you think will be particularly challenging for whether it's some form of creative expression, some emotional intelligence, generalization, are there aspects that yeah, it so, will struggle so, with? The, so so the, the physical work is the one one thing. The, the other thing that I wanted to mention is exactly that, is that emotional connections with humans. So... Mm. Um, when uh, so this is a place where we have an unfair advantage mm -hmm. as humans, and when I use that unfair advantage, is that it's easier to connect with another human if you are a human. Uh, you have a lot of shared uh, background. Uh, I can sort of pretty, uh, I can make this a very simple assumption that the pain you feel is that I can feel the same kind of pain. Mm. We probably feel the same kind of pain. We feel the same kind of joy. We probably have the same internal architecture. Mm. Uh, and so that assumption is something that uh, builds empathy that is very hard to, to have with the machine. So the, the other thing that I think machines have a hard time and will have for a while is, is have a conversation. And I know that GPT can write essays and poems and can sort of answer questions, but having a a conversation about nothing, okay, like a idle conversation, mm. is the hardest thing. Mm. I mean, it involves so small talk, basically. Small talk. Yeah. It involves um, rapid understanding of things, taking in cues, body language, eye contact, emotion, shared background, humor. I mean, you there's so many channels. Mm at the same time, all being processed very, very rapidly hmm. uh, and require a ton of intelligence. Again, this is 
this is not normally what you associate with with intelligence, but again, it's because we are so good at it, we don't appreciate it. But having a conversation, not, not again, a lecture about some topic where you've rehearsed and it's a one-way street, mm. but a back and forth, rapid conversation, unprepared, spontaneous, uh, not something you can look up data and, and, and regurgitate, but you have to sort of respond. I mean, so you know, podcasting is the future of <laughs> career. So, so, so exactly, so that kind of thing. I yeah. think is is going to be very hard for machines to do for many reasons, and it it brings in all these extra emotional intelligences that are are not just number crunching and so on. Right, and yeah, because I was thinking about this with performances, of course, uh, lectures is a form of performance, um, but you, you know already so many actors are being digitally replaced or augmented in their performances. Um, you you see it obviously in the music industry, the performance of the singer is often severely edited right. Right. with auto-tuning and things like this. And so we're already kind of halfway stepping into that world of, well, why do we even need the performers in the first place? Presumably a machine will have already, I would think, be able to sing better than any human being could right. sing. That's for, that's for the one-way choreograph, again, but for the spontaneous interaction, that's, that's still very hard. Yeah. Uh, and not to say we're not working on it. Yeah. Uh, but I can see it's very, very it's hard. It's further down the road. It's much further down the road. And uh, again, when you look at AI, down the road could mean a decade mm. uh, or so. But but I think that's uh, <laughs> it's it's that's not very satisfying in terms of you know what's the future of the human race. But uh, but I think it's, it's terrible. Uh, you say you say it's short for you. Ten years is short in a in a career sense, but. Uh, sorry, long in a career sense, but it's short in our lives. Very, very. And so it's a, it's, I know I will see these things, and we all will. And, you know. That's right. I mean, this is what is, is exciting to me uh, about this. But yeah, and on, on an astronomer's scale, that's like a, yeah, not even, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's right. no uh, unit for this. Yeah, but, right. Uh, so let, let me, because we're kind of getting close to this idea of um, AGI, general intelligent machines and consciousness and things like this. And I saw you were quoted recently in the New York Times on the on the talk on this. And you th I think you said that in the early 2000s, there was sort of a culture of don't say the C word, right. which uh, I had to take a double take to figure out what you were talking about. <laughs> uh, it was consciousness. Um, and so um, it's becoming now people are interested in, in the idea of true, truly AGI in, in conscious machines. And that raises all sorts of ethical implications. It's one thing to have a tool which um, can emulate Parrot back to you in a way which seems like it's intelligent, but it truly it's just a series of nodes emulating that intelligence. It's another thing ethically to create something which is in essence a new life form, a new intelligent sentient entity. Um, where, How do you feel about this from an ethical standpoint? If you had the capability, you had all the, the nuts and bolts in place in your laboratory, you were ready to push the button to connect them and create the first AGI. Would you feel comfortable doing that? Should there be some uh, some laws, some federal governance about who can create this? Or, or are we overthinking the implications? There's a lot there in that question. Yeah, I'm a lot, sorry. A, a lot, lot, a lot, lot there in the questions. Well, first of all, I want I want to uh, uh, emphasize that. Uh, so, one of the things that I'd say the thing that we're working in our lab is this quest for artificial consciousness mm -hmm. for a machine that understand what it is, 
and that is different than AGI. So okay. a cat understands what it is, okay, but it's it's not a threat to humanity. Right, right. So I think this is a very different uh, thing. AGI could be a brain in a jar that doesn't have no consciousness, but it is can answer any questions and can design things and can solve problems, and that I think is a big big deal. Mm. Uh, mm. Sort of a GPT. Pin yeah, that can yeah. do everything. That is not necessarily self-aware, but that's that's the thing where you need to have this discussion. I think uh, could could you where, have AGI without consciousness? I think, think so. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think GPT is a, is a great thing. It's a very it's very general. I mean, G, Chat GPT is already answers questions about anything from mm. from uh, philosophy to shopping list to whatever. Very general intelligence, uh, but it's not self-aware. Okay. Uh, and then, and uh, uh, the kind of things we're working on is the self-awareness, which is I think is very very separate. Again, a dog is self-aware in a small way, and a mouse is, and and humans are, and there's maybe higher levels of self-awareness that we can't think about. But but these are that's a different uh, it's a different question. So now the the big question of whether we should do it uh, or not, and whether it should be regulated. Uh, the answer is for sure yes. I mean, this is such a powerful technology. Uh, it's just hard to regulate it because it's moving fast and mm. because it's very, very, uh, um, it's 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 just very uh, fluid. It can, it doesn't. It's not a nuclear reactor where you can mm. see it. I mean, mm. it's just. Uh, but so it's very hard to regulate. And I think instead of thinking about regulation. What we really have to think about is that everybody has to be involved in this decision to move forward. This is this is why I'm talking to you. This is why I'm mm. talking New York Times. Mm. I think uh, this should not be done behind closed doors and it be revealed. Mm. Uh, it should be something that that we all engage in, participate in, and, yeah. and participate yeah. and discuss and understand mm. the, the power. Uh, it's also important to understand that it's not going to happen immediately. It's it's gradual. So you you we've seen all seen ChatGPT three. We got a taste. We're going to see ChatGPT four when it comes out. There's time, but it's moving, and we can't just sit back and relax. We have to think about this. Mm. And there's pros and cons. As this is fire. This is like anything, any technology. Pros and cons. I certainly have come to terms with myself that. The, the benefits outweigh the risks, but we should do it carefully. This is sort of my feeling, but I'm not pretending that this is like a trivial thing that we just uh, yeah let the scientists take care of it. So there there is something unique and uh, a, a, well, there is something to distinguish between consciousness and, and AGI then. But the combination of the two is perhaps the most right. potent thing that that's, would be in our minds. That that's right. That is really dawning a new civilization potentially that that's going exactly. to coexist with exactly. us. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and th that to me is, again, the, the thing that's most exciting and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, it is exactly like opening the door when you've arrived at, at this uh, at this uh, exoplanet that has intelligent life. You know, it is a sort of irresistible in a way mm -hmm. to do this. But but the consequences are uh, are uh, profound. And I think, you know, we will we'll, yeah. we'll have a uh, a little bit more control over this, but of when, and when and how we open this door, it's a little bit more gradual than an alien invasion. Yeah, uh, and uh, we do have, I think, uh, you know, a decade or two to sort of uh, control how this is going to unfold. But it's uh, uh, look to me personally. You know, I've 
always actually wanted to meet an alien species as a child. I've read, you know, Bermuda Triangle and you, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. any, any book and movie that you could find about extraterrestrial. Uh, I think, you know, I don't know if that will ever happen. Uh, you know, it's a matter of belief and faith, but, but uh, uh, I think uh, the, the alternative is to create this intelligent species, and this is what's happening. And this is the alternative, and I think it's going to be just as exciting. It, al it almost feels like a, a question of futility at this point, because even if your lab shut down and you, and you made the ethical decision, okay, I don't want to do this anymore, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And, ev and there's so many groups all over the world developing this that it's, it's just it's a ticking time bomb at this point. It's going to happen in the same way that probably you can't really prevent the invention of a nuclear weapon. You know, even if the Manhattan Project had been abandoned, it would have, of course, eventually have been discovered elsewhere. It's just, it's within our capabilities to do so. And it's, as technology gets, you know, if it progresses, it becomes even easier to, to manifest this. And so we are really talking about the end of the intellectual premiership that humanity has enjoyed on this planet for the last million years or so. Um, what, I mean, very speculative, but what role do you see for the future of humanity in a world where we are no longer the intellectual kingpin? And not just by a small margin, but potentially by a vast margin. What, what is our role and our relationship with the AI? <laughs> you know, the, uh, I think you said in one of your previous podcasts, sometimes you just have to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is a little bit of a, this is the problem with, I think, singularity. It's very hard to predict what's on the other side of it. Uh, it's just such a, you know, un, there's no derivative that can go through this thing. I mean, it, it's, it's a completely, there's no linear projection that can tell you what's on the other side. So uh, again, the good news is that it's gradual as we get closer. And it's, and like you said, there's many forms of intelligence. And yes, it's going to be very good, maybe at, at in creativity. Um, I can already, but, but, but it might not be good in, in conversation, in empathy. Mm -hmm. It might be better at this. And, and so I think just like, just like we have so many different species already on the planet. It's not just humans and animals. I mean, there's different species and they all are good at different things and bacteria are good at some things and dogs are good at other things and, you know, they can smell better. And so I think there's going to be lots of different AIs. They're going to mm -hmm. be good at some things and less good in other things. And we're going to get, it's going to be an ecosystem. And we really have to think about it as an ecosystem uh, that's going to, that's going to co-evolve with us. That doesn't answer your question. What happens in the long term when these things I guess, continue to evolve? I guess I was evolve. kind of wondering if you were thinking along sort of the Musk route of like augmenting our intelligence or you know, trying to trying to keep up with them, or whether we should really just abandon that and be more living as pets or something <laughs> as compared to them. Um, that there are obviously ways that we could change the intelligence of the brain hypothetically with these chips that Neuralink are trying to develop, but. Many of us are kind of deeply uncomfortable about the idea of putting something in our brains to try and keep up with. AI. I, I would, again, maybe I'm I'm a conservative here, but I would rather not have the AI implanted. Mm. I want to be able to rip it off and turn yeah. it off, at least to disconnect. Yeah. And I feel that once it's inside your body, you cannot disconnect, and this is to be terrifying. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, so, but that's you know. 
there, we, there is going to be a, a very long period where we coexist and we co-evolve. And this is this is to me the sort of the the techno utopian version is that we just co-evolve with this intelligence and it's and good things are going to happen. Hmm. And you know, people are worried about jobs. I think in general as long as we have problems, we have jobs. Mm -hmm. the, as long as there's things are not right, there's jobs, there's work to do. Mm -hmm. And that's going to remain uh, the case for a long time. So I think, uh, so you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. And maybe just to lead us into a, the astronomy world a little bit further and um, get the big picture with what, I, what we try to work on, which is the search for other life in the universe. Um, we are potentially creating a new life form on Earth with these AIs. Does this imply, because it, it is a short time scale, I mean, on an astronomer's perspective, it's a very short time scale that we're going from the dawn of civilization, you know, the uh, Neolithic revolutions of 10, 20,000 years ago, and within that very, very short period, you transform from hunter-gatherers to AI. And there's the idea of catching someone in between then seems extremely small. That's right. So do you, is when you think about the Fermi paradox, the search for life in the universe, to you, is it really binary like that, that it's either dumb, dumb life, which is pr probably primarily like single-celled life, but maybe some examples of um, multicellular life forms out there, and then just other worlds that are just totally dominated by AI? I've thought about this a lot, and I think it has to be. That has to be the case. That you, the, your odds of finding civilization that is intelligent but is not dominated with AI is zero, hmm. because that is such a, a brief period. Uh, and once it dominates, uh, you know, it's then you're going to be communicating with the AI. You're going to be greeted by the AI. Going to be the, the whatever you see in a visiting spaceship is going to be an AI. I hmm. mean, it's not going to be the wet. Uh, uh, aliens in there, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, again, this is. Uh, um, I think, I think that's. It's it's not as romantic as going to another planet and opening the door and being, mm. uh, shaking the hand of a uh, Vulcan. Yeah, <laughs> but but I think I think this is where we got it wrong. This is where a lot of the sci-fi movies got it wrong, mm. and and that uh, it it has to be AI now. You know, I'm hoping that there is. Um, that there is a you know again this this the the utopian version that there's some coexistence so that that AI does does lead you to the wet organisms mm -hmm. somewhere down the line but but I think that's that that the first encounter for sure is going to be uh, a machine wow. and and that that to me sort of opens up two speculative implications um, one is that this AI would have very little interest in communicating with us because. Our intelligence would dwarf them by such a huge degree that we really wouldn't be able to teach them very much from our own intellect. But on the other hand, they might be particularly interested in us from an anthropological perspective, that we are caught in this very narrow window in time, this transitional period that very few planets exhibit. Yeah, right? Even if intelligence is common, which I don't know, maybe there's no, no one else out there, but if it is common, we would surely be rare amongst those by being in that window. Right. We're a rare fossil. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there, there would be an impetus then to study the Earth extensively over as we make this transition to perhaps glean insight as to what their own transition may have been like. Um, 
which leads leads uh, credence to this hypothesis that that we are being observed, but not uh, you know just uh, just uh, right, right, not interfered with. I mean, yeah, the zoo hypothesis. Yeah, yeah the zoo hypothesis was um, in fashion. I think probably in the seventies and eighties a bit more than it has been for a while. But I, I think when you look at this transformation that's happening. Um, it, it does naturally make you think about that again and take it more seriously. Um, but but here's the thing that to me I think is sort of the end game is that um, I guess more of a hope than a, than a real thing. But I think that um, all this this quest for extraterrestrial life involves a lot of technology. It involves telescopes and it involves rockets and propulsion and all, and all these different things that we have to invent. And we are just cavemen trying to invent an antenna. Okay, this mm -hmm. is really, really hard. We're really slow. We're not doing it efficiently. We think that you can only communicate uh, at this speed and in the linear way and whatnot, but maybe we're completely, there's more mm -hmm. ways to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm hoping, okay, we, it's, it looks very difficult, but it could be that we, again, not going to happen tomorrow, but if we have an AI that's good enough in, in understanding signals and so on, it can find ways to communicate uh, and see things that we can't see. I mean, we, we humans are so limited in our senses. I mean, we are so, we can only see such a narrow spectrum and we have all these machines to help us see in a slightly broader, but if you have an AI that can see in 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 wavelengths we can't see and hear in frequencies and go places we can't go and, and you know, send, understand the world in ways we can't even un begin to understand, maybe the solution is actually a lot simpler. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and we'll just, we'll, the, the door will open. I mean, I think we'll... Uh, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of uh, you know things we don't understand, and uh, I always feel like instead of trying to figure all this out, let's build a machine that will figure it out. I mean, that that's kind of the dream, and I have to say, when I think about AI, that's the thing I'm most hopeful about is the idea of AI inventing some, you know, solving the problem of nuclear fusion for us or. Um, developing a faster than light spaceship or whatever it is, you know, some t a teleportation device where we don't have to fly across the Atlantic every time yeah. I want to go home. So, you know, those kind of things would be incredible. Um, and I know AI has obviously been used, we talked about Eureka, and it's been used. Um, I have colleagues who work in, uh, some friends back home who work with like racing car design, for instance, and they use AI to design the shape of the fins and the aerodynamic mm -hmm. foils. But that's really kind of modifying a modification of existing technology. Yeah. I don't think there's an example of this. Maybe you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But it's the ex it's what I really want to see AI do is to invent something that a, a human mind has never conceived of. Right. And then that would be that would to I, me be the game changing that's moment. Right. And that has not happened yet. I agree. But that's the hope. And yeah. I think when that happens, and this will open doors that that we can't even imagine, like quite literally. And um, I think that's to me the that's the that's the benefit. Uh, this is why I think we should pursue this uh, with caution. But I think again the rewards are enormous, and it it uh, it's it's uh, it's not just that it's, it's curing cancer. I mean, it's whatever it is that mm. you care about. I think uh, machines will eventually be able to do that uh, better. Now you know we still have to work on these things because we can't wait. But I think that, again the benefits are, are enormous, and and you can already, I think, see 
things like you know medical diagnostic being mm -hmm. done by AI better than than the average doctor. That's that's already a huge benefit. But you know, this is only going to improve. And I mean, has have you attempted to use the tools you're developing in the world of medication and health? Um, uh, you know, our group has not, but many people have. There's many companies doing this. I mean, medical diagnostics is is is. Uh, Almost anything that you can get data for, uh, you can uh, the AI can can do a better job than a human. So uh, it's it's more of now the question is develop the sensors right. and let the AI do the diagnostics. So this is uh, and I think this is the same thing is going to happen with with science. Mm. Uh, develop better sensors, um, develop uh, better ways to collect data, and let the AI do the rest. And I think this is uh, and, and you know once once we get there. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll learn things that we just are right in front of us, but we can't understand. And I think there's a lot waiting to be discovered. Yeah, uh, there's all sorts of like uh, solving the problem of aging or yeah. Yeah, curing curing various diseases. I mean, it could be. I mean, if if you're an alien species, this is a completely you know fantasy. But if you're an alien species, you embed a signal that can only be discovered with AI, hmm. and so that just keeps. It's a gate, and when you reach a certain level of AI, the door opens because you can understand the message, and that's it. So I think there's a lot, uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know. I think uh, you know there's there's plenty of uh, uh, sci-fi. Carl Sagan had that thing in Contact. I mean, there's the embedded messages that you need to be yeah. intelligent enough to. Uh, but it almost sounds read. like you're like a, a prime directive from Star Trek. In the, you know, in Star Trek they do not make contact with other civilizations unless they've discovered warp drive right that's kind of the the gatekeeping the level thing, right. and so here it may be that there's it's an ai yeah. or some higher plane of intelligence that we're yet to ascend to that's right yeah well there's some hope there i guess for the future you know i'm trying to keep my optimistic hat on and i think you've given me some some reason I, I, I just i'm so optimistic about this because there's so much to discover that we just can't i mean we are we tend to think that we humans are you know, so great and we, we, we understand, but we our brains is, are limited and we are mostly occupied with breathing and walking and doing things like that. And so having a tool, a companion that can understand the world and, and tell us what's going on is going to open so many doors. And this is a, a great time to be alive. Well, you got me excited again. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Hod. This is a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. I've learned a lot about AI here. And um, be sure to check out, you've got a YouTube channel you've recently started where you're talking about some of the work you're doing. That's just your name, I That's guess, right. to search yep. for. So let's check that out. And uh, as always, thanks everybody for checking out this episode. Thank, thank you. you. So that was my conversation with Hod Lipson. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a conversation that was frankly equal parts terrifying and exhilarating, thinking about the future of our society as these intelligent machines and software packages become integrated into our society. I think it's clear that we are living through a transformative period in the history of humanity where for the first time we will make a tool, a computer, that will have an intelligence level comparable to our own and eventually, surely, even greatly exceeding that of our own and even potentially the entire human race. That raises some profound questions about what we will do with this new tool. But there's also some reassurances, right? We could use this 
for the benefit of humanity. We could use this as Hod is trying to do to rapidly increase our rate of understanding of scientific phenomena, to understand the world around us at a pace that would be impossible through human endeavor alone. At the same time, there's opportunities for breakthroughs in medicine and health and the future of our own well-being as a society. We have to think positively about these tools. Like any tool, they can be abused, they can be misused, and I think that is ultimately the main threat of AI. It's not the AI running rampant in a Terminator 2 star world of Skynet taking over. I don't think that's probably the most realistic case. I think it's more likely that the threat of these tools comes from individuals, bad actors, human beings misusing them to persuade, to misinform, to potentially even hurt other humans and large parts of our society. That's the danger we have to be careful of. I think, though, there is a lot of hope that these tools could be a major force for good, as well as potentially something that we have to be cautious about in their misuse. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope you enjoy these podcasts as we have these challenging conversations. If you do, then you can support the Cool Worlds podcast by going to coolworldslab.com slash support. That's coolworldslab.com slash support. And you become a member to both my research group, the Cool Worlds Lab, but also all the outreach work we did, including the YouTube main channel that we run. So thank you for your time today. Until next time, stay thoughtful and stay curious.